0: All right, folks. Uh, this is the course for the Holy Spirit. Uh, We've got name tags uh, we're passing around. And uh, also, have you got the clipboard? Yeah, if, with the clipboard, if your name is on there as we pass that around, just check off that you are here. If your name is not on there, uh, just write your name in in a blank space below there so we can know that you attended Uh, You're not expelled from the class because your name is not in there. What we'll do is we'll take um, breaks about, oh, five or ten minutes before the hour each time. We will try to break right on 1145 for lunch. Lunch will run till 1230. Uh, I'll do the morning sessions, and to the extent I need to, we'll go into the afternoon, but Gary Hutchison will be in, in the afternoon and uh he will uh take take it from there. Then the plan after that, and of course this is really the Lord's call, but the plan after that would be uh to do a ministry time uh with regard to laying on of hands in the Holy Spirit. So we are going to make an effort to stay <clears throat> consistent in terms of the time frames. Um, I was explaining to folks that got here earlier, I have my glasses in my pocket, but I've um, decided to leave them off, which means I can't see you, but I do have my hearing aids in so I can hear you. And because my hearing aids are so sensitive, I can tell from your breathing whether you're awake or asleep. And I can tell some of you are awake. Well, let's pray so we can get uh, right on to what we're looking at. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity uh, to come together and to this morning talk about and seek after the knowledge of the Holy Spirit, uh, this wonderful third person of the Trinity. And we know that your Holy Spirit Uh, And Holy Spirit, I would address you as well. We know that you desire to exalt Christ and to uh, reveal him. And so we would say to you, please, not only show us of yourself, but we ask you to also show us, Jesus, that we might walk from here with hearts that are burning and on fire and also that we might be filled with your spirit that we might also come to know you more and to know the Lord Jesus in greater measure. I also ask that you would put your words in my mouth, that you would anoint what I say, that you would do the same for Gary when he speaks later this evening, uh, later this afternoon, that you would anoint him and place your words in his mouth. But for all those here, I also ask that you would anoint them. Uh, and especially their spiritual ears, that you would open their ears. And, Lord, we offer these things to you for your glory and honor uh, in the name of Jesus. Okay, what we're going to be doing is we are going to be looking specifically uh, at the person of the Holy Spirit. And the primary goals here are to uh, understand who the Holy Spirit is Uh, what he does and how uh, he relates uh, to us. And so what I'd like to do, if you give me just a few minutes, is give you a little personal testimony of where I came from, uh, not to exalt me, but to show you that I've come from both sides of the aisle uh, with regard to the Holy Spirit. Uh, I was a senior in law school at the University of Texas in January 1968, uh, and I happened to hear a British missionary who was a missionary at the time uh, preaching, named Stuart Briscoe. Anybody ever heard of Stuart Briscoe? Uh, he's a tremendous teacher. So is his wife, Jill. Some of you may be familiar with Jill, but Briscoe uh, was like for me listening to Bob Hope, Billy Graham, and Rex Harrison all tied into one. Because, uh, as I said a minute ago, Briscoe is British. And on top of that, this guy was over six feet. He was very macho. He was a champion rugby player, and he was a Royal Marine. So needless to say, uh, he got my attention early on. But what really got my attention was that he was teaching in Ephesians one eighteen and 23, and he was uh, also teaching uh, and connecting that with Ephesians 3.20, and 21. Ephesians, I'm not going to read all of Ephesians 1, but what he is saying in 19, he says, and he, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is named that not only not only in the aged but in this age but also the one to come, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all, and he was taking that passage, and he was connecting it with ephesians three twenty and twenty one uh, which says, uh, "Now to him who is able to do that, who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we may ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations." forever and ever. And what he was talking about was the power of God and the fact that the power of God was made available to us and in us. And what he was saying is, He, When he himself began to connect the the significance of the first passage in Ephesians 1, that all power and authority had been given to Christ, that he is seated above everything in this age and in the age to come, and everything has been placed under his feet, and the same power that God used to raise him from the dead and seat him in the heavenlies and place all things under his feet, Ephesians 3.20 and 21 says the same power is available to work in us. And Briscoe made the statement, the only time a Christian really needs to worry is when he steps into a situation bigger than the resurrection. Well, that completely uh, opened my eyes because I had no idea that it was God working through us, through the power that he makes available to us, in and through us. I thought it was the other way around. Somehow I had to kind of... Work my way uh, with God and do the best I could through God. I had no idea that it was exactly the opposite and The result of that was is that I became suddenly became hungry to know the Word of God, and I would devour the Word of God every night uh, when I, where I was in law school and Frankly, this is an example, and, and many of you may have this same experience. Uh, Before I heard Briscoe and before the Holy Spirit really turned my understanding, uh, the light of my understanding on and revealed himself and revealed the Lord Jesus, I thought the word of God was extremely boring, full of inaccuracies and contradictions. And the only value that I saw to it was a medicinal value. It was a tremendous cure for insomnia. All I had to do was open it up and bang, I was gone. Of course, I didn't realize the devil was behind some of that. Uh, At the same time, when I heard Briscoe and I began in January of 1968 to read the Word of God, I was utterly, totally ignorant of God's Word. I thought the epistles were the wives of the apostles. I have discovered that is not accurate. Uh, uh, since then. But um, I did not know uh, how to read the Word of God. So the only thing I knew to do was to study the Word the way I studied for class in law school. And so the way you do that is you're assigned four cases usually and you read the case the first time, and you're just trying to figure out what it's about. Then you go back and read it a second time, and now you're able to pick up things in the second reading that you hadn't gotten in the first reading because your focus was trying to figure out what it's about. But once you know what it's about, then you're free to begin to pick up other understandings and other sem- uh, subtleties that are in the case and so we read, you read each case three or four five times, and every time you read it, you see more than you saw the last time. And so what I started doing was I just started doing that with the Word of God. So I would shut down studying. We Everybody studied from you get out of class at 3 in the afternoon, you studied till 10. Uh, and you studied in the law library there where the law school was. And so at 7 o'clock, I would shut down Uh, studying and i would go down into the basement of the law library where there was nobody down there and it was dark and the only books down there were the statutes of the massachusetts bay colony from 1658 now there's a cure for insomnia and i would get a little study carol and i'd sit off to the side and i would read it read the word of god and i started with the book of james And the first night, I read it all the way through and went back and tried to read James 1 again. The second night, which was a Tuesday, I read James again all the way through. And then the second night, I studied James 2 as best I knew how to do, which was very little. And then the Wednesday, James all the way through and James 3. And Thursday, James all the way through and James 4. And Friday, James all the way through and James 5. By Friday, I had read James six times. And then I picked up with Philippians and did the same thing, Ephesians and did the same thing. From January to May, I systematically read the New Testament epistles that way. I didn't have anybody teaching me but the Holy Spirit. Now, um, I did not realize, because I'm simply reading the Word of God, and, you know, if that works for you, fine. That's not the only way to do Bible study. That's the way I do it. If that works for you, good. But in the process of reading God's Word over and over and over um, in sort of an organized fashion, I was being taught straight from the Word. So I wasn't listening to teachers who were like people like me, who may or may not be coming from a particular direction. I was just simply getting the unvarnished Word of God, uh, the pure spiritual milk of the Word, as, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2. And what I did not understand was, because you don't pick this up from a direct reading of the Word of God, is that there at the time, and still is, an ongoing debate ...over the work of the Holy Spirit. My mother was a Christian, uh, and she prayed the rest of us into the kingdom. And my mother was a Christian, and she was part of a prayer group. And in that prayer group, healing was not uncommon to occur in that prayer group of women uh, that met together. Uh, and so I thought the Holy Spirit functioned today just like I saw him functioning in the Scriptures. Uh, it didn't dawn on me anybody had any different idea... And so at one point in the early part of my Christian walk, I got into the charismatic side of the movement, but I've also been on the cessationist side. Not that I particularly agreed with a cessationist at the time, but I went to a church that's cessationist. Now, I'll explain to you what that is. Uh, many of you may know what charismatic movement is, but you may not know what the cessationist is, but I'll get to it in just a minute. And there is this tremendous debate between these two opposite factions, uh, in Christendom, uh, and I would suggest to you that the reason for the debate may in some measure be because there's a little ignorance on both sides. Jesus told the Sadducees, who were the Jewish religious leaders, uh, in Mark twelve twenty four. Everybody know who the Sadducees were? They were, they were the liberal equivalent uh, of the Jewish leaders in those days. They did not believe in the resurrection. They were sad, you see. Well, why don't we just pray and quit now? <laughs> now that we've reached the high point. <laughs> but Jesus, speaking to the Sadducees, made an interesting comment to them. And that comment really applies down through into our present age. And what he said in Mark twelve twenty four, he says, You err because you do not know the Scriptures and you do not know the power of God. Uh, And that would suggest to you that that is also part of the cause. I'm not saying it's all of the cause, but part of the cause of the debate that goes on today uh, over the Holy Spirit. Um, We don't understand the Scriptures oftentimes, and we certainly don't understand uh, the power of God. And so on one extreme, uh, the charismatic movement, for example, uh, which is sort of the equivalent of the Pentecostal movement coming, or the Pentecostal church coming into the major denominations, which really arose uh, in the 1970s and late 1960s. Some of the abuses you get on the charismatic side uh, is that um, things can kind of get bizarre. Some of you may know what I'm talking about. Um, And the problem, you know, like in the last 20 years I can think of, you have people uh, barking like dogs and running around cackling like chickens or uh, on all fours roaring like a lion. Uh, And people are saying that's proof of the Holy Spirit is among us and upon us. I don't want to upset anybody, but I would suggest to you that is not proof uh, that the Holy Spirit is among us. Uh, In fact, during the Great Awakening... Uh, in the 1740s, which was on both sides of the pond, the U.S. and and England, Uh, it was characterized by tremendous, powerful preaching of the gospel. Jonathan Edwards, Whitfield, uh, Peter and Gilbert Tennant, Daniel Rowland, uh, 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 John Wesley, uh, people of that sort, and the power of the Holy Spirit was coming down on people as a result of that, and they were starting to get the same bizarre sort of Uh, um, if you will, responses from certain groups and certain people, so much so that Jonathan Edwards wrote a pamphlet on it denouncing it, uh, that the enemy, wherever the spirit is moving in power, the enemy will come in and try to sidetrack. And so the problem is one of the reasons why that is more readily occurring, uh, perhaps in the charismatic movement with everybody wanting to go with the flow, is there seems to be a lack of understanding of the knowledge of Scripture oftentimes. Now, I'm not saying that's true of everybody in the in the charismatic movement. There are some very fine charismatic teachers and preachers that I really enjoy listening to, and I won't say that's true of most people in the charismatic movement, so don't get me wrong, but it is true of many. And I, in the practice of law, I've occasionally represented pastors or ministers from that side of the bench of the, of the of not the bench but the uh, the aisle, uh, and they're being sued because they were surety for something and that sort of thing. And I said, "Well, don't you understand that Scripture teaches that you're not shouldn't do that?" Said, no, I didn't know that. So I I get that uh, from time to time. Um, but does God uh, today? display all of the gifts of the Spirit among His people. Do we is speaking in tongues valid today? Is the interpretation of tongues valid today? Yes, absolutely. God has not changed what he did in the first century. Those things, those gifts of the Spirit are given for the purpose of us carrying out the purpose that he's called us to do, to be a witness and also to build one another into a mature body. But you have to keep your discernment in place because the enemy will come in and and counteract that and try to counterfeit it and take you down the garden path. And the way you keep track of the balance is this word. Uh, and so if you don't know this word well, you're in trouble. You're a potential casualty. Uh, now, on the, um, and, and you know, again, Paul, Paul doesn't say, and And when we talk about the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit, it's not my intention today to focus on speaking in tongues. That is a gift. And I'm not going to get into arguments with people about, is that always the indication of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Uh, I would just say, no, it is not always the indication. And since I'm right, you have to go ahead and agree with me, right? Yeah. But there is usually an outward indication of the Holy Spirit coming upon people. And it's not a question of, well, I just assume it is. When the Holy Spirit comes down on you, you know it and everybody around you knows it. Uh, but, you know, Paul says if you're all in there speaking in tongues, writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14, an unbeliever comes in, he'll say, you're nuts, uh, you're mad. But he doesn't, he doesn't say, don't do that. He says, do it, but make sure that you do it in order. Okay, now, the other side of the aisle, uh, the word that I used earlier, is the cessationist. What does the cessationist believe? Well, I, I'm, I'm wanting you to understand that charismatic side of the aisle, the cessationist side of the aisle, fundamentally on the basics of redemption and the fundamental doctrine, we're together. So we're looking at something that is not fundamental doctrine, but... But they disagree with each other on. The cessationist would say that the Spirit of God's, uh, our God's gifts, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit ceased when the apostles died. And when the New Testament canon was complete, they would say that these things ceased. Uh, and. The value that they have and the advantage that they have is so often they are very well trained. Now, I'm talking about teachers and leaders and that sort of thing. They all often are very well trained uh, in the Word of God, but they start rolling their eyes when you talk about having gotten healed. Uh, or you start talking about the power of God, because the problem is when you start saying to the Holy Spirit, "You can go this far, but no more." That's not your job. That is outside of your jurisdiction. And what that does is it quenches the Holy Spirit, and the result is you cut yourself off from experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, one of the things, I, this between us, and I don't want this to go out of this room. One of the tremendous advantages of Gary Hutchison is he is blessed with both, the understanding of the power of the Spirit, but he's deeply learned in the Word of God. So that's what you need. You have to have uh, both of these things, and there are a lot of pastors out there that are just like that. Uh, They understand both sides of the aisle, but the cessationist, unfortunately, can move to the area where he's very rationalistic, uh, in his thinking in this regard, uh, almost in some cases, this is not true of everybody, so keep in mind, folks, that I'm painting with a broad brush. And there are always exceptions to what I'm saying on both sides. But uh, sometimes they can actually appear to be somewhat anti-supernatural in their uh their tone or their viewpoint, although they would acknowledge the supernatural power of God. They just would not acknowledge that it functions today uh, in the way that it does. Um, If you reject the power of God, you won't experience it, Uh, and that's basically what can happen. Um, Do they preach a valid gospel? They do. And frankly, fundamentally, folks, the the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That's the answer to the problems in this nation. And that is there needs to be a resurgence of the preaching in power of the gospel because that's what changes everything. And I want to emphasize again that in that sense, both sides of the aisle, as I'm referring to it, are together on that. So don't misunderstand me. Uh, Now, one of the problems that I think they have with one another, and you can chalk this up to my opinion, uh, and that is that the cessationist doesn't think that God will show up at a Pentecostal meeting or a charismatic meeting because the cessationist uh, doesn't think that they're involved with correct doctrine. And by correct doctrine, I mean secondary doctrine. Uh, they think their doctrine is incorrect, therefore God isn't going to show up. What they forget is that if God waited till everybody got their doctrine together, secondarily, secondary doctrine, he would never show up anywhere. Yeah. He shows up because he's a God full of compassion and mercy, and he delights to be in the presence of his people. And you will pick that up throughout the scriptures. The Pentecostal or I think the charismatic uh may make the mistake of thinking that because God does show up at their uh, at their uh, meetings and this sort of things, so that God necessarily approves of everything they believe, and I don't think that's accurate either. God flexes with us. Every one of us are have some doctrine that's inaccurate. I mean, we've got our own little ideas here and there, so I'm not picking on the charismatics in that sense. Um, but if you were to ask me where my doctrine is off, I wouldn't be able to tell you. I think I'm right. But i tell you who can tell me, and that's the Lord, and he will do that. And I believe that what he will do as we come into the times that we are in, he's going to take both sides of this aisle and he is going to merge them together and they will cease fighting with one another and I think when they come together in the Holy Spirit you will have that balance that reflects the church as it should be. The church is capable of tremendous power and it's worth going back to Ephesians 1, 18 through 23 and Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 uh, just to look at that. But anyway, here's what we want to do today we want uh, to know both the scriptures and the power of God because that's the balance that's that's where we walk we keep an eye on the enemy coming in trying to uh, counterfeit and lead us down the garden path with regard to the power of God because we really have this desire we want to deal we want to walk in the power of God my guess is there's nobody sitting here who doesn't feel that way you want to walk in the power of God. But to do that and not be led off down the garden path, you've got to have a working knowledge of the Word of God. Uh, when the apostles were living, they were the source of authority. When they died, this became the source of authority. It's their, it's their work through the Holy Spirit. So you've got to know both uh, to avoid going off on the deep end. Okay, what we want to do, uh, and I want to break this down for you, uh, because what we want to do is we want to be taught by the Holy Spirit about the Holy Spirit uh, in Christ Jesus, and we want Him to impart to us uh, to in our lives supernaturally and powerfully and biblically. We want Him to impart Himself the power of the Holy Spirit. To us in that way. So here's what we're going to look at, and I'll break down uh, today's sessions. There's a clock in the back, but since I don't have my glasses on, I can't read it. So somebody, I've got to watch, but if anybody notices we're getting close to five minutes of the hour, uh, somebody raise your hand. I'll try to stay on target because I know that breaks are important. Uh, And if you've got questions, too, I'll be down here. I'll be glad to uh, field any questions you've got. Now, the thing that we want to look at is this. First, we want to look at the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we want to look at Jesus' ministry in the Holy Spirit when he walked on this earth. Jesus dependent on the Holy Spirit for uh, God's glory. And third, we want to look at the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the believers. That's you and I sitting here, you and me sitting here together together. We want to look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, in our lives and our dependence upon him. So the first thing we want to do is we want to look at the power, I'm sorry, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Because uh, the Holy Spirit uh, is a person. And he's not a force as in Star Wars, uh, and he's not a mist or a gas. You know, you tend to think that when you think the old King James English was the Holy Ghost. And we kind of tend to, we have this idea from the movies and whatever what a ghost is. Um, The other problem that we have in conceptualizing the Holy Spirit is that the Father and the Son, uh, I think, are sort of, to use a big word, Uh, anthropologically similar in our thinking. What I mean is we can conceive of that from a human standpoint. We all had fathers, and so we can sort of conceive that. And God the Son has taken on flesh and walked in a human body, and so we can conceive of that more readily than we can the Holy Spirit, who doesn't seem to have that connection uh, to us. But what we need to understand about him, and this is very important uh, is that he is a person? He is the third person of the Trinity. The Trinity is uh, God is one in God is one in one essence manifested in three separate persons, and the Holy Spirit is one person. They are co-equal, co-eternal, but they are separate persons. What they do within the Trinity is they are continually. Uh, exalting one another and giving honor and glory to the other uh, because that's part of love. That's why there's a trinity. If God, uh, God is love and God being love is others oriented uh, and he, they continually are exalting one another, we don't have time to go through this in the scripture uh, to see it, but you can see it at various places in the scripture. And the indication that God is more than one person is because love has an object. If God made us in order to have somebody to love, then God wouldn't be infinite because he would then be dependent. And so there's more than one in the Trinity because they have an object of loving one another. Now, that's not intended to be the end-all proof of the Trinity being three persons. But what I want you to understand is the Holy Spirit is not a gas. He's not a force. He's not this mist he is a person and what we want to look at is the fact that he has the way we know that he has person as a person is because he has characteristics of a person. Uh, We tend to limit persons in our understanding to people we can see, but we need to understand that that is not the definition ultimately of a person. And so I will give you some examples of the Holy spirit. First of all, uh, the Holy spirit, uh, We can look at him from the standpoint of his personality. Uh, A person has personality, and that's what the Holy Spirit has. He has characteristics uh, that prove he is a person. For example, uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, the Holy Spirit um, is intelligent. I'm not First Corinthians twelve. I'm sorry, First Corinthians two, and we'll come back to this uh, periodically. But First Corinthians two, ten, for to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all the things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of man, which is in him, even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us. Uh, so, in other words, he searches the deep things of God and he knows the thoughts of God uh, and he is willing to and does reveal that to us. In other words, uh, Isaiah 55 says, My ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are above your thoughts. But God is willing to reveal that, uh, reveal His ways and His thoughts to us. He does that through the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Now, Ephesians 30, uh, um, I'm sorry, Ephesians 4.30, I gave you the verse without the chapter, indicates that the Holy Spirit also has feelings uh, because it's possible uh, to grieve the Holy Spirit. Uh, for example, Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then 31 will give you insight into the sort of things that will grieve the Holy Spirit. He says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted." Forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Uh, In other words, our conduct uh, can grieve him. And if we get the idea that we're righteously indignant about something and we're getting bitter about it, that doesn't mean God is on our side. In fact, the Holy Spirit will withdraw from us because that's contrary to his nature. Verse 32 tells us what his nature is like and what the Holy Spirit desires to have in us. Now, he also, and this again goes back to 1 Corinthians twelve, 11, he has a will. In other words, mind, will, and emotions are the basic aspects of personhood. And the Holy Spirit himself has a will. If you look at 1 Corinthians 12 real quick, uh, you will see uh, in verse 11 that the Holy Spirit distributes gifts as he wills. So he has both a mind, he has a will, uh, and he has an emotion. And he chooses to give gifts and ministries uh, as he determines best. Um, in John fourteen twenty six, we know that the Holy Spirit also teaches us. Uh, let's get John fourteen twenty six. Uh, if you don't know your Bible today, you will by the end of the session. Uh, John is due east of Luke, if that's of any help uh, to you. Uh, John fourteen twenty six says this. He says, um, "But the Helper, the Holy Spirit." whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said to you. And then if you would turn over to First John, uh, and First John 2.26 uh, says this, These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you, for you have an anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need of anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, uh, you abide in him. Uh, He is talking about the Holy Spirit uh, is the one who teaches us. And so he not only uh, has mind, will, and emotions, he's active in the exercise of that. He is the source of our teaching. Uh, One of the things I do when I teach and I did it when I stood up here to to speak to you, is I asked God to put his words in my mouth. Because if I do not speak his words, you don't want to sit here and listen to my words. What we want is the words that come directly from the Lord. The great prophets in the Old Testament, like Samuel, spoke the word of God. But it was the Holy Spirit speaking uh, speaking through Samuel. So we want to, when we're being taught, We want to uh, be taught through the Holy Spirit, speaking through the teacher. Now, the Holy Spirit also teaches through circumstance and trials and that sort of thing. But there are a number of ways by which he teaches, but one of them is through teachers. And so always, whenever I get up here, I'm I'm aware of what I'm like. Uh, You don't want to be around what I'm like. But the idea is for the Spirit. The Spirit to speak to us uh, and teach us. All right. Now, um, let me give you some examples of the Holy Spirit's teaching uh, and the way he he does it. Um, The Apostle Peter uh, was, as we all know, was a fisherman, uh, but he begins in the book of Acts uh, to begin to exhibit an understanding of the Scriptures that somebody on his level should not have had uh, from a logical standpoint. Uh, If you will look back to Luke, uh, in the last chapter of Luke, uh, Jesus says this in Luke 24, um, 45. Jesus, what what is the context? Jesus has risen from the dead. He is in the upper room with the disciples. He is appearing to them in his resurrected uh, body. And it says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And I would suggest to you the Holy Spirit will do that uh, with us as well. The same incident is recorded by John in the upper room on Sunday evening of the day of resurrection, and John records it in a slightly different way. If you would look at John twenty, uh, verse twenty-two, and then again Jesus in the upper room with the disciples. It says, "And he, and when he had said this, he breathed on them." Uh, let's go to twenty-one. So Jesus said to them again, "Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you." And when he had said this. He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that breathed on them, receive, word, the word received is in the aorist tense in the Greek. That means it is once for all. So receive the Holy Spirit in John 20, uh, 22, I would suggest to you is the same thing when he says in Luke uh, twenty four forty five. and he opened their minds to understand the Scripture. So then what happens? Look over in Luke, I mean Acts. I say Luke because Acts wrote, uh, Luke wrote it. But let's look at Peter at Pentecost. I love Acts uh, 2 because they've been in the upper room of one heart and one mind praying together. And wham, the Holy Spirit falls on them. And they come out speaking in not unknown tongues, but tongues of the people who live, uh, who are in Jerusalem for, for Pentecost. And they are Jews from all around the Roman Empire. These people are bilingual. In other words, they speak Hebrew or Aramaic, but they also speak the language of the place they came from. And so the apostles come out speaking in tongues of the languages of the people who are there who are pilgrims for the uh, festival of Pentecost. And these people say, what is this? Now, a couple of guys say, uh, well, they're just high on new wine. And Peter's response to that, that can't be. It's too, too early for the bars to be open. Notice what he says. Um, then Peter, verse 14, taking his stand with the 11, raised his voice, And declare to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. In other words, he's saying it's too early for the bars to be open. People don't get drunk this early in the day. And then he goes on, and here here is the key to the Holy Spirit has come upon them and has opened their mind to understand the Scriptures. Look what this fisherman is now going to do. He says, and it sh- but this is what is spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour out forth my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And he pr- proceeds to take the second chapter of Joel and begin to not only quote it to the people sitting there, but explain to them what it means and that it applies to what they're hearing. In other words, some of your translations will say, before he declares to them the prophet Joel's prophecy, he'll say, this is that which is written in the prophet Joel. What does he mean by this? What you people are hearing from us, this is that which is written in the prophet Joel. That is Peter, through the Holy Spirit, having opened his mind to understand the scriptures, expounding scriptures to the people at Pentecost. In fact, you'll see him doing it before Pentecost. Uh, look over in verse uh, chapter one of Acts um, uh, let's see verse uh, let's say verse fifteen. I'm, I'm going to skip some of the verses at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. Uh, And then drop to 16. Brethren, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David, concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he he was counted uh, among us and received his share of the ministry. Uh, Then we'll... Luke gives us a little parenthesis about what happened to Judas in 18 and 19, and so let's drop down to verse 20. Peter, again speaking, "...for it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another take his office. Therefore it is necessary..." that the men who have accompanied us all this time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us one must become a witness of us with us of the resurrection there he is again this is before Pentecost now he is expounding from the book of Psalms the scriptures and i would suggest to you it is because of what happened on the evening Of the resurrection in Luke uh, 24, 45, he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. You have the Holy Spirit in you, I would suggest to you that you can be capable of that, uh, understanding the Scriptures. Because if you are not in Christ, the Scriptures mean absolutely nothing to you. You think the only value to them is medicinal, that it's a good cure for insomnia. The scriptures are a puzzlement to you if you're outside of Christ. Anybody know what I'm talking about here? You know, before you knew Christ, this made no sense at all. In fact, look over in 1 Corinthians. That's one indication, folks, of the Holy Spirit's presence in you. Is If if you understand and have a desire for his word. Uh, 1 Corinthians, we were at that location just a few minutes ago, 1 Corinthians 2. Um, We were reading 10, 11, and 12, verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 2, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. If you have the Holy Spirit in you right now, you have the ability to grasp the truths that are in the Word of God. If you don't, this is complete muddle. To you. This doesn't make any sense whatsoever in the, in the true sense that the way in which the scriptures are supposed to be read. Okay. Now, also, we know from Acts 4 uh, that the Jewish rulers, when Peter and John were brought up before them, let's go to Acts 4. And let me say, too, read, Pente- read the sermon at Pentecost. He goes on two or three more times to expound the Scriptures with regard to the resurrection. By Scriptures, I mean the Old Testament. He will take Psalm 16 and explain that David in Psalm 16 says, For my body will not be left in Sheol because your Holy One will not see decay is a picture of of the resurrection of Christ written by David a thousand years before it happened. Where did Peter get that? Holy Spirit in him, opened his mind to understand the scriptures. Two or th- at least three times he quotes the Holy Spirit, uh, he quotes the Old Testament and makes application of the Holy- of the Old Testament uh, to the present circumstances that they are in. And I tell you, that is the most tremendous thing. Any of you ever experienced that? All right, well, let's go back to the Gospels then. Now, I think you you know what I'm talking about. You know, I can see heads nodding. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. But now let's go over to Acts 4. Um, in Acts 4, Peter and John have been arrested for healing a cripple in the name of Jesus. Now, they weren't really arrested for healing the cripple. The reason they were arrested is when the Sadducees with the temple guard came on them, they were preaching the resurrection of Jesus, and that is an anathema to them. They believe in a general resurrection at the end of the age, but not an individual rising from the dead in the middle of history. And they are arrested for that reason. And so they are brought uh, up before the Sanhedrin. And here is a tremendous indication of the Holy Spirit at work in Peter. Look at uh, Acts 4, 8. Then Peter, and here is the key phrase, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man was made well, let it be known to all of you and of the people of Israel by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you, now it's gutsy, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. Now look what he does. He is the stone which was rejected by you. Now, he is quoting from the Old Testament, but he is applying it to the Sanhedrin that he is speaking to. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. The thing, I, you, you want to look at that and you say, what happened to Peter? Peter? Six weeks earlier, um, six or seven weeks earlier, he's standing in the courtyard of the high priest, and a servant girl says, you were with him, weren't you? You're a Galilean. And he says, no, I'm not. And she says, oh, I can tell by the way you say, no, I'm not. You are. You've got a Galilean accent. (laughs) And what does he do? He denies Christ three times and runs out. That was Caiaphas, the high priest's serving girl. Here he is in front of the entire Sanhedrin and Caiaphas and the whole pack of them. And he says, you crucified the Son of God. What happened to Peter? Holy Spirit. That's what happened to Peter. And then notice what it says. Verse 13. Now as they, that is the Sanhedrin, observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And the same is true of you. Um, our story I like to tell is Thomas Huxley in the 19th century was a tremendous intellect. He was an arguer, a proponent of the new theory of evolution. And he was highly intelligent, highly educated. He was staying at a British manor house one weekend, and they were all on Sunday going to church, and a little parlor maid was all dressed up to go to church. And Huxley said to the parlor maid, stay behind and tell me of your faith. And she said, oh, Dr. Uxley, you could tear me to pieces. I don't know anything like you now. And he said, I don't want to argue with you. I just want to know what you base your faith on. So she stayed behind. An hour later, she had him in tears. Why? The Holy Spirit was speaking through her. And she was giving him the gospel, the power of salvation. The power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first uh, and then to the Greek. Okay, Uh, Romans 8.4, we know that one of the things the Holy Spirit does is he guides, I'm sorry, Romans 8.14. He guides those who are led by the Holy Spirit are sons of God is what that says. We're not going to turn to every scripture or we really will be here till 8 o'clock tonight. And I'm going home before that. So I've brought a tape recording. I will turn that on, and you can listen to the rest of it. Um, Romans, um, he commissions Acts 13.4. In Acts 13.4 in Antioch, there are a number of the disciples praying, including Barnabas and Paul. And in verse 4, the Holy Spirit speaks to them and says, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the, the job, if you will, that I have for them. Uh, Then he also intercedes, Romans 8.26. This is a tremendous uh, passage, and we're going to get to it a little later. Uh, Romans 8.26 says, For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings uh, too deep for words. Uh, and then it says in john fifteen twenty six uh, that he speaks uh, to us the holy Spirit speaks john fifteen twenty six says the spirit will bring to mind all the things that I have said uh, and speak of me i 'm um, kind of summarizing that fifteen twenty six uh, it says, when the helper comes whom I will send to you, whom the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me first peter uh, second peter one twenty one also makes a similar statement about the Holy Spirit in second Peter he says uh, in chapter one twenty one he says, No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit.' who spoke from God. Uh, the Holy Spirit spoke God. Let me read that again. Is there anybody there? Second Peter, uh, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. In other words, men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Uh, And Jesus said, of course, the Holy Spirit will testify about me. His responses to people uh, prove uh, that he is a person. As I said earlier in 430, he can be grieved. Uh, Bitterness, anger, rage, um, uh, brawling, slander, uh, every form of malice, that will grieve the Holy Spirit in you. Um, And he will back off, as I said earlier, uh, when we harbor those emotions, they're contrary to his personality. Incidentally, bitterness often results from a refusal to forgive somebody or some, or even God. Unforgiveness will result in bitterness. Bitterness will do tremendous damage to your system. Uh, anger will destroy you. Uh, in the course of practicing law, I've had occasion on three different uh, on three different occasions to tell three different men uh, that I was representing uh, who were upset uh, in divorce cases, all three of them uh, with um, their wives or their ex wives and they were so angry and so full of bitterness I told them that if they did not get rid of that, it would kill them uh, and I quoted to them psalm thirty seven uh, which says, verse 8, cease from anger, forsake wrath, do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. but evildoers will be cut off. Those men were so full of anger and bitterness over what had been done to them that I felt impressed to say and quote that passage in Psalm 37 to them, that if you do not deal with this, let God take care of it in your life, it will kill you. All three of those men were dead within a year after I said that. And you cannot function in the Holy Spirit and move with Him and harbor any of that stuff from Ephesians 4.30 in your life. Uh, You may feel like you're perfectly right in the way you feel, and you may feel that you have every right to feel that way, but the Holy Spirit doesn't see it that way. That is contrary to what He is and who He is. Uh, and you will quench him, and quenching the Holy Spirit, incidentally, is sin. Um, Great, uh, while I'm thinking about it, the great um, um, English preacher that I really like is is Martin Lloyd-Jones. If you're in the Sunday school, you hear me quote him fairly often. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a tremendous book on the Holy Spirit and he was not a cessationist. And he spends one chapter on the Pentecostals, and he just rips the Pentecostals up one end and down the other, and, I, and in a kind sort of way, in the sense that he shows where some of their doctrine is off. Then he spends a chapter on the cessationists, and he rips them up one way and down the other and shows where their doctrine is off. And then he says, if I have to choose, I'd go with the Pentecostals, because the cessationists are quenching the Spirit, and that's sin. Martin. Uh, Oh, what is it? Um, something about joy. It's Martin Lloyd Jones. Uh, it's the Holy Spirit, but he's a he's an individual who was balanced in it. But he understood quenching the Holy Spirit is sin. You walk in anger and unforgiveness and anger and bitterness, resentment. You're quenching the Holy Spirit. And I would suggest to you not only is the condition that you are walking in sin, but you are quenching him and that's sin. So that's that's very critical. Okay. Now, also we know from Hebrews 10.29 that he can be insulted. Now, Ephesians 4.30 says he's grieved. We know from that he's gr- he, how he can be grieved. Ephesians, uh, Hebrews 10.29 talks about insulting the spirit of grace by continuing in sin. Uh, and so he can be insulted. Are we five minutes? All right. Let me finish uh, real quick, and we'll take a break. Thanks, Jim. Um, Jim will take a break. The rest of us will go on. <laughs> um, he can be lied to, Acts 5.3. Ananias and Sapphira. Um, Peter, when he speaks to Ananias, says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. What happened to Ananias? He dropped dead. Sapphira came in, didn't know what had happened. Same thing. Uh, Dropped dead. I would suggest if God ever gets busy cleaning up the church today in the power of the Holy Spirit, we might see more Ananias and Sapphira because he will not tolerate... Lying to the Holy Spirit. Okay, he can be resisted. Acts 7:51. Stephen told the Jewish Sanhedrin they were stiff-necked, always resisting the Holy Spirit. That was true, but it got him stoned. How would you like to be a preacher, and the end of it, they stone you? Uh, and then he can be blasphemed. Matthew 12:31. Uh, and we will get to that next. Let's take a five-minute break. Grieved, uh, possible to insult the Holy Spirit. Even more serious, it's possible uh, to uh, blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Um, And so if you would look at Matthew, uh, let's see, 12, Uh, Matthew and Mark both deal with this episode of um, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I want to go a little bit into detail on this because it is something that concerns a lot of people. Uh, various folks, uh, before they are a Christian, worry that they may have said or done something that blasphemed the Holy Spirit. So, uh, and the reason that that is so serious is Jesus, in this particular passage, says to the Pharisees and the scribes that anything you say against the Son of Man can be forgiven. But what is, uh, in other words, you can blaspheme Jesus, and uh, we're in a culture right now that blasphemes Jesus on a regular basis. But he's saying to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that is an eternal sin. There is no forgiveness. And so far as I have been able to determine throughout Scripture, it's the only place, the only time it is said that there is no forgiveness for blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So how does that happen? Uh, What is blaspheming the Holy Spirit and how does that happen? If you would turn to Matthew 12 in verse 22, when a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw, all the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? And then here's the statement beginning in verse 30. For he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come." Uh, Where I most commonly hear the concern is people that were uh, sort of on the cessationist side at one point when confronted with someone speaking in tongues attributed their tongue speaking to the devil. Then they had the Holy Spirit fall on them and they kind of transferred sides uh, of the aisle and now they're worried uh, that they blasphemed the Holy Spirit in attributing... Uh, a particular gift of the spirit, like tongues uh, to the devil, well, uh, what we have here is we have a demon possessed man that was brought to Jesus, uh, and being demon possessed one of the issue, one of the aspects of his demon possession was that he was mute, that is he couldn't speak. <clears throat> the uh, rabbis taught that there were certain signs or certain Uh, events that only the Messiah could do. One of them was healing the lame in Isaiah 35 is regarded as a messianic sign that only the Messiah would do. Opening the eyes of a blind man was another one, was regarded as a messianic sign. Healing leprosy was regarded as a messianic sign. In other words, there's no indication in Scripture uh, of people doing those sort of things and they were saying that if when the Messiah comes he will do it <clears throat> with regard to demon possession uh, the Jews had a very elaborate method for casting out demons that's what Jesus says when your sons cast out demons by whom are they doing it well their method involved requiring the demon to name himself Uh, And that was regarded, once the demon named himself, that gave you authority over the demon because names were regarded as very significant uh, in those days. The only problem was is they could not cast out the demon of mutinous. Why? Because they couldn't make him name himself because the guy couldn't talk. And so the rabbis taught the people that when the Messiah comes, he will cast out the demon of mutinous. So what happens? He casts out the demon of muteness. That results in the crowd turning to their rabbis. Look at that. Verse 23, all the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Why are they saying that? Because their rabbis had taught them the Messiah would do that. The Messiah just did it. And they turn to their rabbis and say, son of David? Now the rabbis are in a spot because they are not in favor of Jesus of Nazareth and now he is again doing something. There are two or three other places where he has performed messianic miracles and here is one that they themselves have got to admit. This is what they've taught. They don't want to admit who he is I would suggest to you that they know who he is. They know exactly who he is. There's only two ways you can go with this. Either he is the Messiah of God or he is from the devil. They opt for the devil. And knowing what they're doing, they attribute what he has done through the Holy Spirit to Satan. That's the unforgivable sin. You have to know that you are blaspheming the Holy Spirit when you do it. And one or two commentators suggest that it only applies to the nation Israel because as a nation, through their leaders, they blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And judgment was coming within the next 40 years when the Romans came in and wiped everything out. I don't know about that. It might be correct. I'd like to think that it's really limited to that. But I would suggest there's nobody sitting in here this morning who has blasphemed the Holy Spirit. You wouldn't be seeking after Jesus if you had blasphemed the Holy Spirit. You don't want anything to do with Jesus. But these men were shown again and again, and I can show you various places in the Gospels, where it was very obvious that they were being confronted by the holy spirit work through jesus and they and they knew exactly who he was if you look in john 3 you will see at the beginning nicodemus comes to jesus in the nighttime somebody once said that's nick at night but <laughs> But Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he is a member of the Sanhedrin, he is a well-respected Pharisee, and what does he say to Jesus? Teacher, we, W-E, we know that you are from God because no one else can do these things unless he is of God. They know who he is. And instead, they attribute what he's done by the Holy Spirit. And it's very clear here that it's not Jesus as God doing this, as the God the Son, it is the Holy Spirit doing it. And he is saying there's no forgiveness for that, and that is the uh, Holy Spirit. Uh, that is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Also, another indication of who he is, is that the, so often, and we'll not look at this, but numerous times uh, the Holy Spirit is referred to by pronouns. Uh, in other words, uh, he. Uh, you never you never get an it on it. Uh, incidentally, the Father and I'm not suggesting there's gender in the in the uh, in the uh, Trinity because they're of spirit. They're not human beings in the sense of gender at all but the father and the son are often the terms used for them are often masculine for the holy spirit it's usually a feminine term i'm not saying the holy spirit is a lady don't misunderstand me but it's just interesting that so often the holy spirit is used in a feminine uh sense and i think that in part and this is just my opinion which is worth exactly nothing the the well the the, 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 the No, but the Greek language and sometimes Hebrew language will use a. uh, How many Spanish folks in here? Spanish is a good example of it. Um, For example, um, the the article l nino will indicate nino as a child. L nino, the o indicates male child, and the article l is used with masculine. Uh, la Nina would indicate a child that is female, and the and the article is uh, la is feminine. Um, that, but I'm not a Greek scholar. I'm just saying that certain terms are not calling her the Holy Spirit. She, but oftentimes there is a feminine. Uh, Characteristic or or terminology used, but they're not saying that the Holy Spirit is she. God doesn't have gender. But my personal opinion is, um, and I don't want to undercut the Father or the Son at all, but the Holy Spirit is so personal in terms of dealing with us and being with us, and that is a unique aspect of the female side of man. Um, You know, women tend to be very personal. And what's interesting is if, for example, you're doing an investigation of, say, an automobile accident and you're talking to male and female witnesses, the male witnesses will invariably emphasize the accident, the collision, all that sort of thing. Female witnesses will oftentimes emphasize the injuries to the people. Now, that that doesn't always go across the board. I'm only giving you an opinion. Don't go out there and say, Jerry said the Holy Spirit's a girl. The Holy Spirit is a person who does not have gender. I'm just saying that sometimes the the language can be used that to, to describe is oftentimes in the feminine gender. But that doesn't mean uh, mm, well I'm just giving you my opinion. So just let's erase that. Run that tape back and let's erase all of that. That's just my that's my not not so humble huh? Uh, yeah, Nick at night, yeah. But there are various personal pronouns, but sometimes those pronouns can be used in the feminine. It's my understanding. Now, I'm no Greek or Hebrew scholar. I'm just telling you what I've read, and I couldn't tell you where I read it anymore. It's been decades ago. Uh, seems to me um, Moses might have said that to me. But, I, but anyway, clearly the Holy Spirit is a person, uh, and this person... Is God, don't ever think otherwise, and the characteristics that we see of him prove that he is God. We have already read twice now in first Corinthians two ten and eleven, but one of the characteristics of the spirit uh, that we see is that he is omniscient, it says that he searches the hearts, searches even the the deep things of God, and he knows the thoughts of God, he knows your thoughts as well. Uh, He is utterly omniscient. He is omnipresent. Psalm 139, uh, 7, where can I go from your spirit? Uh, Where can I hide from your presence? Uh, Jeremiah 23, uh, 23 uh, is another indication of uh, omnipresence. Uh, Let me see, where is it? Sometimes getting through the pages can be difficult. Twenty three, twenty three. am I a God who is near, declares the Lord. Am I not a God and not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in hiding places? Do I not see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill the heavens with the earth and the earth, uh, declares the Lord. The Spirit and the Lord are one and the same uh, because we know that now the Lord is the Spirit. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3.17 and where the spirit of the Lord is uh, there is liberty uh, so he is omniscient he is omnipresent uh, he is truth 1 John 5.7 uh, says that he is truth uh, we know from Luke 11.13 and I'm just giving you sample scriptures I'm, these are not the only ones uh, that say this but he, we know that he is holy uh, we know from Romans 8.2 that he gives life uh, look at Romans 8 2. It talks about the Spirit. Um, uh, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Um, also, um, his um, works. Uh, prove that he's God. Incidentally, he's omnipotent too because he is uh, omnipotent. Omniscient means all-knowing. Omnipresent means he's everywhere. Omnipotent means that he is all-powerful. Satan is none of those things. He likes to pretend that he is, but he is none of those things. We know in the beginning, the creation in Genesis 1 Uh, that the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the waters. Incidentally, again, there the Hebrew word is hovering is used as fluttering as a dove. Uh, Where have we seen that? Uh, The dove descended upon Jesus at his baptism. Is the Scripture teaching that he's a dove? No, it is not. It is using that as an analogy. But the Spirit... Hovered over the waters is the same word uh, that as the dove fluttering or coming down. But he is hovering over the waters, and God says, let there be light. It is the Spirit that is uh, functioning. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit function together uh, in the creation of the heavens and the earth. Uh, we know that true of Jesus also, uh, that he was actively involved in that. Uh, look, if you would, real quick to Colossians. This is one of my favorite passages, Colossians 1, 15. Uh, for he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That is Jesus. There is none greater. That's why Peter says to the Sanhedrin in, in Acts 4, there is none other, there is no salvation by any other name. He is the one who is also omnipotent. But the Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit function together in the creation of the universe and the creation of the world, and they to do that are omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, the three of them. They are co-equal, co-eternal with one another. One is not a little more omnipotent than the other. That would be a contradiction of terms. They are all equal. The Holy Spirit uh, is the same way. Now, uh, he is also, his works also prove that he is God because what I just said for number one, his, he was involved in creation. In other words, the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the waters, uh, and that is describing the creative process. Um, and he is also, we know from Second Peter one twenty one, which we read earlier, about no prophecy is of man's doing. He is also uh, the author of inspiration. We know from Luke one thirty five that the Spirit was involved in the conception and begetting of Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, because Gabriel tells Mary when he says, "Hail, uh, Mary." Um, you know, favorite of God, uh, you're going to have a son and you're going to call him uh, Emmanuel, God with us. And Mary says, huh? (laughs) I'm not married. How's that going to happen? Gabriel says, the Spirit of God will come upon you and you will conceive. So as the Holy Spirit was actively involved in the conception uh, of Jesus of Nazareth, Uh, he regenerates and saves people. Uh, John 3, 5, and 6. That's back to Nick at night. Uh, that's Jesus talking to Nicodemus. Uh, and he says, you must be born again. That which is born of, of um, let me let me just get it. John 3, uh, Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now here's what Jesus says. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So our redemption our being born again is done by the Spirit of God. Not only that, but he then dwells in us and lives in us. Um, and what I mentioned before, another work of the Holy Spirit that proves He's God, is what I said before in Romans eight twenty-six, is that he uh intercedes for us. Let's just go get uh let's go back to that passage, Romans eight twenty six In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Let me give you one example of how I think that works. Uh, Now, in, in giving this example to you, I don't want you to assume that that's all this verse is saying. It's not. It's much broader than what I'm about to say. But I'm going to give you an example of the way I think the Spirit coming into us works. The Spirit of God we know converts us, brings us into Christ Jesus. He imparts the faith to us. You didn't have faith. He gave it to you. He imparts the faith to you. And then he comes and he dwells in you. Jesus says in John 14, the Spirit has been with you, but he will be in you. And, and, and I think that's verse 14, 26 or 7. Gary's going to deal with that in much greater detail this afternoon. Um, but the Holy Spirit comes and he dwells in us. And in justification, God imputes the righteousness of Christ to us. What does that mean? When God sees us, he sees Christ. Christ. But as we walk through this life, God imparts the the righteousness of Christ to us. In other words, what do I mean there? He is changing us so that when the world sees us, they see Christ. Okay, well, when the Spirit comes to, does this make sense? Okay, when the Spirit comes to dwell in us, and this is just my making it up, I mean, it's. but here's, I'll give you an example of what I think is going on. He's making a checklist when he comes into you Uh uh-huh, okay, seen that before. All right, we can handle that. And then he begins to intercede with the Father on our behalf. And the Father begins to arrange our circumstances to deal with the intercession of the Spirit on our behalf. And that's why the next verse says, For we know that in all things God works together for good, for those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. Why? That we might be conformed to the image of his Son. Because the Holy Spirit is interceding for us, asking the Father, knowing the Father's will, asking the Father to change us, and the Father begins to respond to us in Christ. You with me? All right, now let me give you another example, of a literal example, because the Holy Spirit is, this, this verse is much broader than that. I'm just giving you an example of it. But I'll give you another example of it. Um, and some of you may be well familiar with this. Uh, and that is, um, in, a, in a Sunday school class that I was in, oh, back in the late 70s, and that's 1970s, I realize in some of you there's some question about that. But um, we had, uh, I taught a class of young couples, um, young marrieds. And we had a couple who was in the class with us. Um, They came from a small town not too far from here. And um, he was, uh, talk about Tom Cruise, he looked like, Tom Cruise only taller and he was the captain of the football team his daddy was the town doctor his wife was the um, one of the cheerleaders and her daddy was the district judge there um, they were in our class and she became pregnant and um Uh, Toward the end of the pregnancy, he came home one day. He was an engineer. I don't mean on the railroad, but he was a. I think he was a civil engineer. They were in their twenties. He came home one day, and she was very, very sick. And he rushed her to the hospital. Uh, What had happened was that she had toxemia, and they hadn't caught it. And he they rushed her. He rushed her to the hospital. And they delivered the baby within a couple of hours. And the doctor said to him, if you had brought her in a few minutes later, you'd have lost both. So right away, you can see God orchestrating. The baby was born, was fine. The problem for her was, though, is that she developed eclampsia. Women still die in childbirth in this country. And the reason for it oftentimes is eclampsia. And so she, um, her potassium level just went off the charts. And she became so bloated, she was unrecognizable. The hospital here in Arlington felt like they were beyond their um, ability. So they sent her to uh, Baylor in, in Dallas. And um, on a Friday night, and she was not doing well. And our class was praying hard uh, for her. But on a Friday night I got a call from one of the other couples in our class. They had been over there. And they said that um, it didn't look like she would survive the night. So we prayed for her but felt kind of you know how it is. You feel kind of like you're spitting in the ocean. You know, it's you just don't. You feel so weak. And so the next morning, um, I expected to hear that she was had passed away in the night. But she wasn't. She hadn't. In fact, she was progressing upward. Um, finally, within a few days, she left the hospital. And so I had lunch with her husband a couple of weeks later, and I said, what happened? And he said, well, it was very interesting. Uh, He said, I was sitting out in the waiting room. She was in ICU. And I thanked God for the five years of marriage that we had had. I thanked him for the little boy that we had. And the Lord began to speak to me through the Holy Spirit, and he said, we need to pray for And he said, it's too late. We don't have time to get the elders here. And the Lord said, don't need the elders. You'll do. And he said, but I'm such a sinner. <laughs> I'm not righteous is the way he put it. And then all of a sudden in his mind, he had a picture of a pure white robe dipped in blood. And the Lord said to him in his heart, put that on and let's hear no more talk about unrighteousness. And he says, now go into the ICU. And he said, I can't go into the ICU. They won't let me in there. And the Lord said, when I tell you to go into the ICU, you can go in there. So he went in, and there was nobody there but her. She was so bloated, she was unrecognizable. And so he stood at the head of the bed she was in, And he said, Lord, what do I do? And he said, you just let me pray. And he said that at that point, something began to come out of his mouth. He had no idea what he was saying. And for an hour, it went like that. And then it started to wane. And he said, Lord, what's happened? He said, you're doubting me. Now, what do I do? He said, deal with the doubts. How do I do that? He said, acknowledge your doubting. He said, just say, I'm doubting. And the Lord said, that's all you need. All right, I'm doubting. And the flow picked up again. And they went for another hour. And then the same thing, it would start to wane. He said, I'm doubting. It'd pick up again. But it was the Holy Spirit. And I said, what were you saying? He said, I don't know what it was. Much of the time, it was just groans. (laughs) It was a language I didn't understand if it was a language uh, and we went, he went from 10 in the evening till 7 in the morning and had no idea what the time was. And when the doctors began to make their rounds, they were shocked. The um, bloating was already receding, and she was already very different from what she was. Now, there is an example. For we do not know how to pray as we ought but the Spirit intercedes for us in our weakness. See, That Spirit is prepared to do that for any of us because we're His children. We're His people. Okay, The Spirit was interceding uh, according to the will of God. He didn't know what that was. He assumed it was physical death for her, but the, that was not the will of God for her. And so the Spirit began to intercede for her that little boy today is a surgeon. <laughs> kind of ironic, isn't it? Okay. Uh, he also sanctifies believers, Second uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Uh, we are set apart from the rest of the world. Uh, part of that is due to the fact that the Holy Spirit will began to impart to us the thoughts and the attitudes uh, that come from him that makes us very different from the world. And the reason why we begin to think things very differently from the rest of the world and why the world doesn't know us. Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. They hated me because I was not of the world. You're not of the world. Why are you not of the world? Because your values and your thoughts and everything in your thoughts, system is being rerouted and changed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, And that's the reason Paul talks about the spiritual armor, and he says, put on the helmet of salvation. That would deal with the fact that the Holy Spirit is changing the way we think and what our value system is. It doesn't necessarily happen overnight, but it begins to change in us because this process, is what it is, is a process of changing us. Uh, from being what we were before into beginning to look like him and to think like him and to talk like him. But that process will run the gamut of our earthly lives. Uh, We never quite get there, but when we finally, redemption is complete, we get rid of these earthly bodies, and then we're in bodies uh, that are without sin. Everybody with me? But it's the Holy Spirit in you that's doing this. Uh, that enables you to understand that uh, look at second corinthians two i 'm sorry second thessalonians uh, two thirteen. Uh, This is one that deals with the Antichrist. We're so busy looking at chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians with regard to the Antichrist, we sometimes miss uh, chapter 2, verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was... For this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are moving through this life, being changed by him as he intercedes for us. God arranges our circumstances, but he is changing the way we are, the way we think, the standard of values we have that makes us utterly different from the world. And the church should always be that way. Throughout church history, The time in which the church was most effective in bringing people to Christ and bringing them into the church was when the church was least like the world. And it is a mistake to think that the church today, in order to get the world to listen to us, must be relevant to the world. If you try to be relevant to the world, the world will define relevance. The truth of the matter is, What we have in Christ is precisely what the unbeliever is looking for. And what God wants to do is reveal himself to us through our personalities, reveal Jesus through each of the personalities he's given to us in order to display his glory because we are his body. And so it's the Spirit of God in us moving through us and changing us and it says ultimately in 1 John 3, children, verse 1, now we are the children of God. And he says, but we do not know how we shall appear, but we know this, when he appears, we shall see him as he is, for we shall be like him. The Spirit has been doing this in your lives all along. That is what he is doing. And Romans eight twenty six and 7 plays a big part of that. Okay. All right, okay finally uh, his his names we're actually about to get to part two. Uh, now you see why we'll be here till late his His names reflect that he is God first uh, Corinthians six eleven says the spirit of our God uh, Jesus in matthew twenty eight nineteen when he was com- giving the great commission, he says, "Go out uh, and make disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son." And of the Holy Spirit, uh, and you know, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So the three, the triune God, is listed there at that time. The Holy Spirit is Almighty God, and must be revered as such. The Jews were right on, in my opinion, in the way uh, they addressed God. They would address him uh, in a personal way, but they would always address him as well in a high and lifted up manner. Uh, They would combine person with king, if you will. Uh, Look at Psalm 80. It's one of my favorite psalms. It's a beautiful example of the way the Jews addressed him, and I think this is something that we need to get uh, back to doing because I think we're entirely too familiar with God. Yes, he's Abba Father, understand that but he's almighty God too, and he is holy. Here's what the Jews, uh, Psalm 80, verse 1, Oh, give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. Shepherd, king. They used the terms together. They didn't want to get too familiar with the king. Nevertheless, they had a relationship with him, and they understood that. We have that relationship. But understand this, folks. It is the Holy Spirit that runs our lives. We don't get him to do our agenda. We follow his agenda. Jesus did not come to be our helper, to accomplish our purposes. We are called to follow him, and the Spirit in us Will lead us in the agenda that He wants. It's important, folks. We, I know what we want to get to is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to get to that. But this foundation has to be laid first. Uh, it's very, very important to keep us from going off down the deep end. Everybody with me? Everybody awake? Yeah. All right. Yes, ma'am. Psalm eighty, verse one. Yeah. Unfortunately I just Because mine says I've got the NIV, it says you would sit enthrone between cherubim, shine forth, and then verse two before Ephraim, Benjamin, hmm. Well the reason is you're reading out of the NIV and that stands for nearly inspired version. <laughs> I read out of the NASB. I had, a, I had a guy in the class said, that actually stands for not actually scripture, but <laughs> oh, give verse one, oh, give ear shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. What a tremendous comparison of the God of the universe as both shepherd and king. And we need to keep that balance in our thinking Uh, because we are very lacking, I think, in this country, even in the evangelical church, we are lacking in reverence. Um, My wife and I were in Canada many years ago now, and uh, we went to a a, um, Benedictine monastery. My wife grew up Catholic. I grew up Protestant. And we went to the Vespers service at 5 o'clock. And so the monks are all and the priests are all going along, and they're swinging their incense, and they're bowing before the cross, and they're doing their what I call Catholic thing. And I'm sitting there in my mind, and I'm thinking, Lord, this is really hokey. And you know how the Lord responded to me? I see it as reverence. Oh, well, okay. (laughs) You know, we could use a good dose of reverence, frankly, uh, because he is our father and we can come into his presence. But he is also king. And we need to keep that in mind. We don't get in line with his agenda, our agenda, get him in line with our agenda. We get in line with his agenda. There, there's a lot of ways to be reverenced, uh, folks, and reverence is a matter of the heart. Um, this is not a lesson on reverence, so I'm not, I'm not going to get into it, but I'm, I'm just going to say there's a—I think I see in the churches, I see a lot of—I see a lack of reverence oftentimes. Uh, it is good to recognize—and and I'm not talking about being celebratory or praising God. I mean, you can praise God and and celebrate who He is. And that we should do. But you always have to balance that with reverence because He is Almighty God and He is holy. And um, I'm constantly asking Him to bring me up short. You know, David said in Psalm 139, search my heart and see if there be anything in there, including the irreverence. So I, I have to be very careful uh, because I delight being in his presence the most wonderful part of it is he delights me being in his presence but again reverence is still part of it okay second part and that is the uh, work of the Holy Spirit Uh, what we've already said is that uh, his work is seen in creation we already saw that in Genesis 1 uh, that the Holy Spirit was part of creation Uh, Among things, like uh, what he gives us as part of that creation uh, is life. Uh, Job, let's don't turn to Job, but I'll give it to you. Job 33, 4. But let's turn to Psalm 104, uh, verse 30. Uh, You send forth your spirit, they are created. You renew the face of the ground. Uh, the Holy Spirit is responsible for the order of creation. Uh, one of the tremendous indications that the universe has been created by God and not evolved is the tremendous order in which it appears, and scientists will tell you that. I mean, there's no question that the order of the universe and of the earth and all of these things are phenomenal. Uh, Isaiah 40 um, Verse um, 12, um, he who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. Now notice, notice how this is written. He who measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens of, uh, uh, by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. You see the order there? Measured, marked off, weighed. That is part of this omniscient power of the Holy Spirit, this omnipotence, this intense order that is displayed throughout the universe as well as our own as well as our own planet. Now um, he is part of we've said this before in some of these verses you'll hear more than once uh, he is the author of Revelation. Uh, again, Second Peter 1.21, No prophecy ever came from originated with man, or by the will of man, but uh, the Spirit spoke through them of God. Second Samuel twenty three two. Um, let's run over there. That's uh, to the left of uh, of Psalms. If you're in there right now, Second Samuel. 23, 2 says the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. Ezekiel 2, 2 says, I heard the spirit speaking to me. And Micah 3, 8 says, I was filled with power with the spirit of the Lord. Uh, he is the means of revelation and the means that he uses are varied. Uh, Exodus 19.9, we'll not turn there, but the spoken word is one of the means by which uh, he gives revelation. And by that, I mean here the vocal word. He is speaking directly to Moses in Exodus 19.9. And he can still speak today. Now, I've never heard an audible voice from the Lord, but I know a couple of people who have testimonies uh, of the Lord speaking directly to them. Anybody familiar with that? You are? Yeah. Uh, I know the story of a guy that was a bootlegger in the 20s. Now, I wasn't there then. But he was quite well-to-do because he made all his money on bootlegging, and he was on his way to his office one day, and a voice spoke to him and said, Why will you not receive my son? And he stopped and looked around, shrugged his shoulders, and went forward, headed started walking again and this voice he says, now nobody, I didn't hear it so I can't verify the truth of it but he said, the voice again spoke to him, why will you not accept my son and he jumped into the nearest alley and looked around uh, the corner and then he went on to his office and again the voice said, I'm saying to you a third time, why will you not accept my son and it got through to him that the son was the Lord Jesus Christ. And the, it was God was speaking to him and he surrendered his life to Christ. Now, whether that story is true or not, I can't verify that because I wasn't there. I didn't see it. Uh But I do know that there was a valid conversion because I know the preacher who knew him, who, who spoke, who told the story, this man gave up bootlegging and became a missionary in China had tremendous impact among the Chinese people in the twenties, late twenties and early thirties. But he does, he can speak, uh, but it doesn't happen very often. Uh, but like he did with Moses, dreams is another way that he can speak. Uh, we know, for example, uh, Joseph had dreams uh, of uh, prophetic dreams that God, you know, when he was a little, when he was a boy of seventeen, uh, he he saw the uh, they were. He made the mistake of telling his brothers about it. Uh, I'm not sure God intended him to do that. Uh, but he he says, hey, I just had this dream. We were all binding sheaves, and your sheaves bowed down to mine. What do you think of that? The boy said, not much. <laughs> uh, and then he had another dream. But we have constant examples, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, of dreams. Um, I, I've had... I've had what I think is maybe three dreams from the Lord. Um, when I was in the Navy, I was legal officer of an air station. There was a fellow that who was uh, kind of the hub of the criminal conduct that was going on on the airbase, and uh, we um, the what they call NCIS now in my day was O and I, and his office was right next to mine, and he was doing everything he could to nail this guy. And he was trying all he, you know, we we were we knew that he was the center of a tremendous amount of criminal activity, and he we finally I say we it was the O and I guy that got him we finally got him, and they were bringing him into my office the next day for me to serve charges on him, and when I took the charge sheet out, uh, the charge sheet flops all the way down to the floor. I mean, when we got him, we got him. Uh, narcotics, um, counterfeiting, not counterfeiting, theft, forgery, assault. Uh, I mean, he really got him. The night before, I know this guy is coming into my office. His name is, he's a sailor named Barber. The night before, I have a dream. In the dream... I am seeing the passage, 2 Corinthians 3.12. No explanation as to what 2 Corinthians 3.12 says. The dream changes, and I'm in the church I'm going to, and the pastor stands up, and he says, "'This morning's sermon is on 2 Corinthians 3.12.'" And I say, great, now I find out what it's about. And then the dream changes, and they're all leaving the sanctuary, and everybody is saying, wasn't that a marvelous sermon on Second Corinthians 3.12? And I'm running from person to person say, what, what, what did it say? And then the dream change again, there's the big letters, Second Corinthians 3.12. What do you think I did when I woke up? <laughs> it said, and I read it out of the Berkeley version, Seeing what a great hope we have, we speak with great plainness, plainness of speech. Well, I thought he was talking to me because my assistant legal officer was an atheist and we went around and around like that. And I thought God was just telling me, stop trying to be as intellectual as him, because I knew I was. And I didn't want people to think, or him in particular, that I'd had a frontal lobotomy because I was a Christian. Well, 930, they bring Barber in. And uh, Barbara sits down and I said to him, you know why you're here, don't you? And he says, yes, let's get this over with. I open the door, the dress door, to pull out the church seat, and the Holy Spirit speaks. And he said, do you remember Second Corinthians 3.12? This is going on in my mind. I said, yes, why? And he said, I want you to announce the gospel to this man in as plain a speech as you can. And I said, Barber? And he said, Barber. Shut the door, shut the the drawer. And I said, Barber, has it ever dawned on you that Christ took on flesh, hung on a cross, bore your sin, and paid the penalty of eternal death for you that you might be with him in heaven? And you could have thought I had just hit Barber right between the eyes. And he, he jumped back and then he said, Yes, sir. I've thought about that a lot lately. And about three minutes later he came to Christ. And I said to him, I said, You understand this doesn't change anything. We're still going to court martial you. And he said, I understand. About a month later, I got a call from one of the doctors that worked in the dispensary. He was a believer. And he said, there is a guy on the station, air station, whose life is utterly changed. I'm just so amazed. I got up and gave a testimony in my church. His name is Barbara. Have you ever heard of him? I said, yeah, I've heard about Barbara. <laughs> but anyway, let me finish, and we've got to take a break real quick. Um, also, visions, Isaiah 6.1 one. Uh, Isaiah had a vision. Uh, the written word of God is of course the revelation of uh, John fourteen twenty six is the way the spirit most often operates. 1 Corinthians 2 13. Christ himself is revelation. Um, he is the author of inspiration of the Holy Old Testament. Uh, 2 Samuel 23 2. Obviously 2 Timothy 3 16. For no scripture has been uh, given that is not of God. I'm, I'm Paraphrasing, Second Timothy three sixteen. Get Mark twelve thirty six, Hebrews 10, 15, 16, But basically, it is saying that he is the inspiration behind Scripture, um, and uh, that is asserted by the writers of the Old Testament uh, of the New Testament as well. Uh, First Thessalonians four two, um, and the Apostles two three sixteen. Get this one. I like this one, but there's a number of passages that they attest uh, the spirit of Second Peter three sixteen. Uh, he's talking. Peter is talking about Paul. He says, "Also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand." which the untaught and unstable distort them as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their destruction. So they are confirming that the New Testament itself is inspired. Um, Now, we're going to need to take a break. But um, the reason why the scriptures are uh, inerring and infallible is because they are written and inspired by the Holy Spirit. Everyone, Old Testament, New Testament, they're no different. Okay, let's take a break for about five minutes, come back 11, five minutes after 11, and we will finish up for lunch. Up With the third and final section that I'm gonna do, and then uh, Gary will come in this afternoon. Now, if I don't get completely finished, I'll finish a little bit in the afternoon, and then Gary will come in and, and pick up on it. But. After going through all of that we've been looking at in terms of the Holy Spirit, who He is, uh, that He's a person, uh, that He is uh, intimately involved in creation and the various works of the Holy Spirit, Uh, you can see the Holy Spirit is very intimately involved with everything, as is uh, the Father and the Son. It's not these two working over here and the Holy Spirit's off doing his thing. It doesn't work that way. They are intertwined in what they are doing together. And the Holy Spirit is very, very actively involved, uh, not only in the creation of the heavens and the earth, but also in our own lives. Uh, and that's very significant to understand. Um, I hope that if you came in here not knowing about him very much, you are getting uh, to know him and the way he is he um, every one of the of the members of the Trinity are uh, wonderful uh, they call uh, Jesus wonderful when you the more you get to know him um, I've taken uh, groups through um, three or four times through the book of Luke. The reason I do that is Luke emphasizes the humanity of Jesus, whereas John emphasizes his deity. But in Luke, it's sort of like you really get to know the person, and he really is a tremendous person. Uh, He is a wonderful person. Uh, You get to the—he has everything under his control. Even on the cross, he has control. And then when he gives up his spirit, the Father takes control. But you look at what he does and the way he maintains control, and the secret of his control, incidentally, is humility. And um, you think, yeah, I could follow this man anywhere. Uh, but he he is a tremendous individual, and this is what we want to do now, is we want to look at the work of the Holy Spirit in relation to Jesus' earthly ministry. And you need to listen to me very carefully in terms of what I'm about to say initially here, because there is, can be some confusion here. Uh, there's some teaching in this area that is confusing and I think is off the mark, and so you want to be very careful and that is that what we have here, Jesus' relationship to the Holy Spirit is, uh, and we're going to look at Philippians 2, uh, but Jesus chose to empty himself uh, as God to become a man. Now, this is where the confusion begins because the incarnation is God, Jesus is fully God and fully man. And when I say empty himself, which is the word we're going to look at in Philippians, that doesn't mean at all that he ceased to be God when he took on flesh. Um, He is not divesting himself of his divine attributes. He is choosing not to exercise his prerogatives as God in the flesh uh, as the Son of Man. But he is fully God, fully man. Philippians says in verse 5 of chapter 2, "...for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." And we know also, if you would look at John, the first chapter of John, verse 1: In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2: He was in the beginning with God. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Uh, and it says, no, uh, oh, John 1. John 1, verse 1, chapter 1. The, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Uh, in verse 3, it says, all things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. And then verse 4, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And also what I read to you before in Colossians one, fifteen, sixteen, and 17, where it says that all things were created uh, through Him and for Him, whether visible on all authorities and principalities, whether visible or invisible. In other words, not only the... Um, Um, the dimensions that we're familiar with, uh, you know, the four dimensions uh, height, depth, breadth, and time, but also any other dimensions. He is the one who has created them. Uh, Spirits, demonic and angelic, both Dwell in other another dimension. I read one time a scientist who said they theorized that there was as many as ten dimensions. Of course, they don't know. I don't know how many dimensions there are, but however many there are, Jesus created them. I mean, they were by and through Him and for Him, and so He is both God and He has taken on flesh. Uh, and what that means is is that God the Son, and this this is the area that the enemy attacks. Uh, significantly and that is the incarnation Uh, but he took on flesh Uh, and that is as a man he he was he took on flesh as a man and this is what Philippians is just telling us but he was fully God but he chose to be absolutely dependent on the father's direction and much of his ministry occurred by the Holy Spirit doing it through him. You with me? Now, incarnation is not something we understand very well. Uh, But the idea that he emptied himself is called the kenosis. In other words, or the kenotic theory. And there's, I don't want to get really confusing here, but in other words, he emptied himself. He laid aside his divine prerogatives as he walked as Jesus of Nazareth. But he still had them and he could exercise them. We know from Colossians one seventeen that he upholds the universe by his power. All right, is he doing that when he is Jesus of Nazareth? Absolutely. Is he upholding the universe by his power when he is a baby laying in the crib in Bethlehem? Absolutely. He is God. Uh, he is never less than God. And some of these teachings on the, quote, kenosis, and they won't perhaps use that word, so don't let it, Get too much in your vocabulary. Suggest that he put aside his divine, divested himself as his divine attributes and came to earth, suggesting that he's actually less than God when he's Jesus of Nazareth. That's heresy. And I'm hearing teachings not right now in certain churches. That is not what he did. He chose not to exercise his prerogatives as God, but he could have... And there are places in the Gospels where he did. Is he omniscient as Jesus of Nazareth? Is he omnipotent? Is he omnipresent as God? Yes. Always. But what he has done is, as Jesus of Nazareth, in the context of taking on flesh and ministering and bearing sin, He has chosen not to exercise divine prerogatives. You with me? Okay. God doesn't die on the cross. God doesn't die. A man does, but God doesn't. We cannot understand how it works. Somebody told me one time the relationship of the nature of God and the nature of man within Jesus of Nazareth is a hypostatic union. I thought they were talking about the Lent that clings to my You know, we cannot grasp, it's a mystery, we cannot grasp how he is this, but he is. We cannot grasp the Trinity. There are all kinds of things that God is willing to show us, but it is beyond our ability to fully grasp it. But what I'm saying is, he chose to become a man as God and man, two natures in one one flesh. You with me? Can we s uh in that same turn use it as him laying his divine authority, put in you know to become man? Can you say as an example of humanity? Uh well he was he was fully man. While he was fully God. Yes, he's upholding the universe, but you notice in John four, he's beside the well in Sychar why cuz he's weary. What else? He's thirsty. Okay. Uh, when there is a storm at sea, he's sleeping on the back of the stern. Why? He's tired. Um, you know, how does this work? We don't know. We don't know. But we do know that it is so. We do know that he is fully man, fully God. The devil, certainly in the first four centuries of church history, attacked the incarnation heavily. They attacked primarily on the deity of Jesus, but there were also attacks on the humanity of Jesus, and the progeny of those heresies is alive with us today. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness. Uh, They denied the deity of Christ. There are all kinds of that stuff. And the enemy is constantly trying to undermine that and attack it. But what Jesus chose to do when he walked on this earth to bear our sins as as a man who did not have sin himself was to rely totally on the Father. And the Father would guide or direct him in what he wanted him to do and what he did he would do through the Holy Spirit. Okay, did he function as God though when he was down? Oh yeah, you remember when they dropped the the paralegic, paraplegic, before him, uh, and, the, and Jesus said, "Son, your sins are forgiven." The Pharisees sitting there said, "That's blasphemy. Nobody can forgive sins but God." The theology is right. Yeah, nobody can forgive sins but God. When? What does that tell us? <laughs> He's God. Yeah. Uh, he can forgive sins. And he says, well, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or pick up your uh, your mat and walk? Uh, pick up your mat and walk. And the guy gets up. And everybody gives God glory. Yes. If that had been the devil, that would, you know, if he had been blaspheming, yes. God wouldn't have healed the guy. No. So sit- there's another example where they're sitting there, the scribes and the Pharisees, and they know exactly who he is. Who can forgive sins but God? Right. He's God. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. But what does he do is he chooses uh, to walk according to the direction of the Spirit. Uh, Get John 5. Turn to John 5 real quick. Um, Let's see. Verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Uh, Let's see. Verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so... He gave to the Son also to have life uh, in Himself. Back up to 21. Uh, let's see, I'm looking for... I may have just read it in verse 30, but He says, I can only do what I hear the Father doing. Um Yeah, verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. So he he is God, he is man, but as man he is walking in direct obedience to God, the Father, in, in direction. He is doing what Adam and Eve were supposed to do. He is walking in direct obedience. Uh, obedience to him and that's John five nineteen and 20 I didn't read 20 but in other words he says what he's doing there um, and he says that um, and this is why Jesus referred to himself as the son of man uh, because he was functioning as man in the capacity of his ministry uh, and he was depending on the Holy Spirit uh, to do it uh, but what he tells us in Acts 2.22, and this is Peter uh, talking. He says, men of Israel, listen to those, these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. So, in other words, the Spirit of God was performing these things through him. He was walking in obedience to the Father. The Holy Spirit was performing this through him. Was he capable of doing it himself? Yes, he was. But he was functioning as a man walking in obedience to the Father establishing perfect obedience because he would be a sinless sacrifice for us. You with me? Uh, it's it's very significant uh, that he did that. Now, he did not refer to himself as the Son of God, but he called himself the Son of Man. But, folks, he didn't hesitate to admit he was God if he was questioned. Before Abraham was, John 8, I am. Yes. You know, he, he's saying, Abraham, he's talking to the Pharisees in John 8. He said, Abraham saw my day, and he rejoiced in it. And they said, you're not 50. Have you seen Abraham? Truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am okay but he is functioning as the son of man there's a couple of reasons for that because he is identifying with us that's what he came to do was identify with us ultimately and totally to bear our sin as well as absorb our punishment but also what would happen if he runs around saying i'm the son of god yeah well we'd have rebellion among other things against the romans that's not what he's there to do but is he god yes will he admit it yes yes The high priest comes down in his trial, Caiaphas, when he's being tried. And incidentally, they violate every rule in the book. Uh, They violate their criminal procedural law uh, when they try Jesus. He's not supposed to to demand that Jesus speak. He's not supposed to come down off the desk. He said, I adjure you by the living God. Are you the Christ? And what does he say? Yes, and you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory. That is from Daniel seven thirteen and 14, where Daniel saw the Son of Man coming in the clouds, comes up to the ancient of days, and is presented before him and receives an everlasting kingdom. The fact that he is coming in the clouds was symbolic that he was also God. So you see the incarnation in Daniel as soon as he said, and you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Instantly, they knew all along he had been saying he was God and man. <laughs> yeah. And what did the high priest say? What more do we need? It's blasphemy. blasphemy. See, they knew what son of man really meant in the context of Daniel 7. And he'd been going around saying, I'm the son of man. Uh, now, at the end, they understand what he means. Is everybody with me? Yes. Okay. Now, uh, part of the reason he's doing this, too, is to demonstrate our relationship uh, once we are redeemed and brought into relationship with with God uh, through the Holy Spirit, he is demonstrating what it is like to walk depending on the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that's what we'll do. He says in John 14, 12, Truly, truly, I say unto you, the things that I do, greater things than this will you do. Uh, You're know, talking about believing in him because He is demonstrating and modeling what it is to walk in the power of the Spirit. He is doing that for our benefit because that's what we do. That's what you're going to see the apostles do. That's what you're going to see happen down through the history of the church. We are also walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Everybody got it? Okay. Now, we can look at some of the indications of the Holy Spirit's work with Him. Uh, we said already that He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. We saw that in Luke one thirty four. Um, we see in Luke three twenty one through twenty three when He is baptized by John the Baptist, the Spirit comes down upon Him, uh, and He is sealed uh, with the Holy Spirit. And the purpose of the Spirit is not to make him the Messiah. The purpose of the Spirit coming down upon him is not to make him God now. Uh, There's all kinds of twisted teachings that deal with that. Uh, The Spirit is coming upon him for the purpose of empowering him to do the work that he has come to do. Was he God before the Spirit came on him? Absolutely. Was he God in the cradle? Absolutely. But the Spirit has now come upon him to, as a man... Uh, to give him uh, the power to do what he is going to do in his ministry, and he's going to do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at Luke 4. We're going to have to come back just a little bit in the afternoon to finish this because I do want to let you go at 11.45. Um Verse 1 of Luke 4, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. Now, we're going to look a little bit at Jesus in the wilderness, but Luke 14, Luke one fourteen, and Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread through the surrounding district. So what we're seeing is the relationship now of Jesus to the Holy Spirit uh, in carrying out his ministry and uh, you'll notice that uh, in the temptations in the wilderness, and let's get um, let's look at back, staying in Luke 4, uh, verse 2, uh, the Spirit, verse 1, led him around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, uh, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, oh, come on, He knows uh, the if could be since, since you are the son of God is more likely what he's saying because he knows all the demons always know who he is. You know, the rest of us don't get it, but the demons do. Uh, And he says, and the devil said to him, if or since you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The devil's temptations are generally aimed at human beings in three ways, and we get this from 1 John 2.15, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And they don't vary, and the reason they don't vary is because they work. And he subscribes to the old idea, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And those three the temptations we receive that come from the enemy break down in those three categories. Now, in this case, the devil is going to do the same thing with Jesus. Now, these temptations are a lot more subtle than we realize. Uh, and what we want to do is look at this first temptation. Uh, if you are the Son of God or since you are the Son of God, uh, turn these stones into bread um, uh, this particular temptation, which of the three do you think this is based on? Lust of the lust of the flesh. Why? He's hungry. Uh, he's not been eating for forty days. He's hungry, so the temptation is based on the lust of the flesh. He's saying, "Since you are the son of God," now notice the subtlety. He is addressing his deity. "Since you are the son of God, turn this stone into bread." Now I'm pretty good at turning bread into stone. But I've never been able to turn stone into bread. Uh, You let it sit long enough, and, you know, David could have slain Goliath with it. But he says to Jesus, turn this stone into bread. What is the temptation? First of all, the vehicle for it is lust of the flesh. But what is the object of it? It is to get him to exercise his divine prerogative. You, God the Son, turn the stone into bread. He has committed not to do that. He won't do that unless the Father says, turn that stone into bread, in which case the Holy Spirit will do it. But the temptation is very subtle. If you are the Son of God, if you are deity, exercise your divine prerogative, turn the stone into bread. And how does he respond? It is written... It is written, "You shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God." Um, that is a um, that is a that is a very powerful and subtle temptation. Then he takes him up on um, now in Matthew, the temptations are varied. Uh, in Matthew, he takes him up to the temple. I believe that's right. Matthew 4. Well, let's just drop down to Matthew. Let's just stay in Luke. Luke 4, 9. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to to the test. Now what's interesting is every time Jesus responds to the devil with Scripture, he responds with Deuteronomy. The devil quotes Scripture. He says, Oh, you want to quote Scripture with me? I'll quote Scripture with you. But he quotes out of Psalms, not the law. Uh, Jesus responds again with Deuteronomy. Now, if you're the son of God, people need to see what you're doing. So just just show how much you trust God. Throw yourself off the temple. And front of everybody. And they'll say, whoa! About 100 years before Jesus is tempted by Satan to do this, one of the rabbis theorized that when the messiah would came he would throw himself off the temple and god's angels would bear him up so the enemy didn't just come up with that out of the blue that was a teaching from one of the rabbis all right what is what is satan again tempting him to do to put god to the test and to step out and the enemy will come to us all the time And he will say, if you really trust in God, you'll just step out. Now, there's one thing to step out in faith, but you do that when God tells you to. You don't on your own say, well, I'm just trusting God, and you step out. That's the enemy. Abraham went from a country that he was familiar with to a land he knew not where, Stepping out in faith. No two ways about it. But God said, leave the country and the family and step out and go where I show you. Always you want God's direction before you step out. You don't jump off the roof of the house and say, catch me. And the enemy suckers us all the time into stuff like that. And he makes it feel like or seem like it's an act of faith. Everybody with me? It's not it's an act of presumption, and Jesus picks up on it right away, and he, he quotes it to him. Um, now, um, after after these temptations, of course, the final one, and Matthew 4 does the final one, He and the, the enemy comes to what he's really after. He, he shows him all the kingdoms of the earth and of the world, and he says, All this I'll give to you. He said, It's mine. Let's look at it again in Luke 4. Because the enemy is good at half-truths. Um, verse 5, Luke 4, And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me. And I give it to whomever I wish. Now, here's part true and part lie. True is, yes, it's been handed over to him. Who did it? Adam and Eve did it. But I, And I give it to whomever I wish. No, you don't. No, you don't give it to whomever you wish. You give it to whomever God says you can. Okay. Then here's where he's aiming. Therefore, if you worship me, it will all be yours. Incidentally, he's going to make the same offer to the Antichrist, and the Antichrist will kind of take him up on it. But Jesus knew better. Lust of the eyes, lust of the boastful pride of life. Yeah. What are those three temptations? First one, the bread, lust of the flesh. Second one, throw yourself off the temple, boastful pride of life. Third one, all of the kingdoms of the world, lust of the eye. I want everything I can get. Second one, throw yourself off the temple, boastful pride of life. Luke does it in that order. He, he does bread. Bow down before me, throw yourself off the temple, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. Matthew reverses the order a little bit, bread first, then throw yourself off the temple, then bow down before me. But it's uh, John 1 15, John 2.15, 2, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. He tried everything he could on Jesus. I will tell you, folks, that this stuff was very subtle. It's not it, we we fail to understand just how subtle it is. What's going on between Jesus and the devil is ding, 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 boom, 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 boom. It's very subtle and very cleverly done. And we think, oh well, that was easy. I would have gotten that. No, you wouldn't. No, it it is like two karate artists going back and forth like that, and and he can't get him. He can't get him. This is one of the reasons he came as God. Man would have failed. God doesn't. This is one of the reasons for the incarnation. You with me? Almost time to go eat. All right. Now, what we see uh, from Jesus, uh, it says in verse 14 of Luke 4, which we just read, that he comes in the power of the Spirit. That was because the Holy Spirit came upon him uh, it is baptism in Luke three twenty one, twenty two, 22, and 23. And so we began to now see, because he is walking in the power of the Spirit, we began to now see evidence of the Holy Spirit. We see him healing. We see him casting out demons. We see him raising the dead by the Holy Spirit. Stay in Luke. Go over to Luke five seventeen. On the day that he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea from Jerusalem. Why did they do that? I'll tell you. The passage right before that, he had healed a leper. Healing a leper is a messianic sign. Uh-oh. So everybody from Jerusalem, Judea, and Galilee, all of the, all of the leaders and the Pharisees, show up, and they're sitting here in front of him. And it says, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. What? Power of the Lord was present for him. What are you saying? Jesus, don't you heal whenever you want to? Yes, he could. But the Holy Spirit is present for him to heal. That's why the phrase says what it says uh, and the way it says. Uh, This is the one we were talking about a minute ago where they let the paraplegic down through the roof. Uh, This is the episode uh, that we're talking about. And um, then there, let me give you another example. Move over to Luke 8. And then we'll break for lunch. But we're, we're almost done with my section. Luke 8. Beginning in verse 1, and I'll just give you the, uh, uh, the, the context of it. But Jesus comes in uh, from a trip, I think. Uh, I think he's d- embarking off of a boat. He's coming in on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, let's see. Make sure I'm telling you right. Not verse 1. Uh, da, da, da. 42. That's where we want to go. Go oh, 40. Luke 8. 40. And as Jesus returned, the people welcomed him, for they had been waiting for him. And then we know in 41 uh, that a man, a synagogue ruler, Jairus, uh, came up to him and threw himself at his feet. Now that's interesting for a synagogue ruler to do that with Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, My 12-year-old daughter is on the point of death. Will you come and lay hands on her? A lot of Jesus' ministry has been done in Capernaum, so apparently it didn't go unnoticed uh, with Jairus. And Jesus, um, and this is what I love so much about him, he said, I'll come. Um, Earlier in Luke 5, when the the leper approaches him and bows down before him and said, if you're willing, you can heal me. Jesus says, of course, I'm willing. Reaches down and touches him. This is the way he is. Come and lay your hands on my daughter. I'll come. Uh, he's on his way. The crowd is jostling him, and there's a woman in the crowd who is has a flow of blood, which renders her unclean. Now, she you got to understand that she can't come into the synagogue if she's unclean. And Jewish life revolves around the synagogue, not only religious but also social. So she is, through no fault of her own, an outcast because she's continually unclean because of this flow of blood. And she knows in her own heart, if I can just touch him, touch the fringe of his robe. The rabbis had a a blue sort of a fringe of, I don't know how to describe it. You know, it's a little, my mind's blank. Any of you ladies know what I'm talking about? Tassels. Thank you. I was having a, I was thinking hassle, but that's the blue tassels on the edge of his robe. Here she is in a crowd She is coming up behind him. She has, in this crowd, she has got to get down on her knees to touch the fringe of his robe. You have to imagine how much she has to lower herself down to touch the fringe of his robe, and bang, she's healed instantly. Now, what's significant about that? Jesus is going this way. She's coming up behind him. He doesn't see her coming. Holy Spirit sees her coming. She's got faith. Guess where it came from? Holy Spirit sees her coming. She touches him. Wham! Okay. Jesus is not consciously participating in this. He turns around and he said, Who touched me? And the apostles say, What? Everybody's touching you. We're being jostled by the crowd, Rabbi. And he said, no, I felt power go out from me. Now, I would suggest to you, contrary to what some commentators say, Jesus is not, he really doesn't know. He is not exercising omniscience here. He doesn't know. He's not trying to get her to admit who she He really knows. He's just putting her on the spot. No, I, he doesn't know. He's not exercising omniscience. He laid that quality aside. He could exercise omniscience. He could turn around and say, honey, come here. No, he's saying, who touched me? The Holy Spirit, it was a transaction between the Holy Spirit and this lady coming up behind him. And she comes trembling to him and admits all that she did. And he says, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Why does he do that? Two reasons. One, so that the public will know she's healed and she can come back into the synagogue. That is to declare her release to everybody. But it's also, because she's admitted being healed by touching his robe, it is also so that people don't get the idea his clothes are magic. It wasn't his clothes that did it. It was the Holy Spirit doing it in response to faith. You with me? Mm -hmm. we got to quit. We don't have more than just a few minutes left. Um, But we'll come back. And finish up what we're doing. And then Gary will pick it up because Gary is going to show how the Holy Spirit functions through us in the same way. So, okay, take a break. I'll stay up here for questions if anybody has any. Yes. Uh, In the case of Lazarus, you'll notice that he stood outside of Lazarus' tomb and he prayed to the Father. Uh, And then he said, Lazarus, come out. Uh, So, again... It was the Trinity working together, Jesus calling on the Father, the Holy Spirit raising Lazarus. But Jesus is the focal point who is calling on uh, Lazarus to come out. Uh, again, also John 11, uh, 41, it says that he. you'll notice there that he did uh, pray to the Father. And he says, I'm praying, Father, because I want them to understand uh, how this is happening. I'm doing this for their benefit. Uh, and so they want them to understand that he is doing this again in obedience to the Father. Uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus, it says in uh, Hebrews 9.14, uh, let's turn there real quick. It says that um, he offered himself through the eternal spirit. Uh, Says let's see if I'm looking at this right. I don't think I'm looking at the right passage. Yep. Gary, do you know what I'm what we're talking about? Is it? I should read it, I guess. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the whom Yeah, okay. Through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Cleanse your conscience from dead words uh, to serve the living God. Incidentally, Hebrews is a tremendous, tremendous book. Um, it, the enemy attacked the deity of Christ very often, most often in the first four centuries. Hebrews functions on, uh, focuses on the humanity of Christ in Hebrews 1 he is god and as god he is king but in Hebrews 5 he is man and as man he is high priest uh, big in Hebrews 1 it says your throne o god is forever and ever but in Hebrews 5 he functions as high priest and today he is the priest king so it is this that's a wonderful book if you ever get a chance to look at okay first peter 317 uh, and 18 uh, states that the resurrection, he was put to death in the body, but he was made alive in the spirit. 317, uh, it says, for it is, for it is better if, if God will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And then uh, the reason uh, that he spent so much time in prayer. And this, you know, I said before that part of this, not all of it, but part of his walking in obedience to the Father with the power of the Holy Spirit moving through him uh, and doing so much of the ministry was to model for us what we would do uh, as in which Gary is going to get into, uh, as a result of his resurrection and the Helper being sent to us, um, but the fact that he was walking in obedience to the Father, and the Holy Spirit was doing these things, he spent tremendous amount of time in prayer, and that ought to model it for us as well. Uh, prayer is something that we have got to spend lots of time in. Uh, in Mark one thirty five, uh, he woke long before daylight, and found a place to pray that was fairly remote so that he couldn't be disturbed. And you really have to do that. You really have to. Now, if you're a mother with young children, uh, you have a problem. Uh, My wife is a prayer warrior. She just had to make time somehow to keep the children quiet so that she could pray. I suggested uh, that she use uh, sedatives, but she didn't buy that. (laughs) I had said chloroform, but she didn't buy that. But even as a mother with young children, she found the time to pray, and it is absolutely critical. If, if the Lord himself considered prayer critical and spent great deal of time in Luke 6 all night on the mountain in prayer, uh, again, the Mount of Transfiguration, what's he doing when it happens, when the transfiguration occurs? He's in prayer. Notice as you go through the Gospels how much time the Lord himself spends in prayer. Uh, It is because of the need to constantly be strengthened and walk forward in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you're not going to do otherwise. Uh, If you think you can just uh, go with the flow and hit hit the road whenever you want to, it isn't going to work it is intended that we enter into tremendous depth of communion with him. And Jesus models that uh, as well as his use, uh, his operation of the Holy Spirit. Okay, I am, oh, John 17, look at that one in in his prayer in the garden in Matthew 26. But I'm coming to an end. Uh, We have now looked at the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit functions in the ministry and life of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, uh, Gary is going to step up and finish it with what's really critical to.